Professional history, yes. My yes. recorded history, they know that. Yes, mm -hmm. they know that. But here's what I want to know: when you, because I, I read about your time growing up, starting on double bass and playing a lot of, as is obvious, jazz. And it's very interesting that a lot of the great players came from from jazz. A lot of the great people we think of as R and B or soul or funk players. Mm -hmm. They came from jazz. Yeah. There's no question of that. Mm -hmm. so, and you can hear it in their playing. Now, the public is kind of surprised to hear that. You and I are not surprised because mm -hmm. obviously in order to play funk the way they, you play funk, you have to have had quite a deep musical background. And you particularly, you had so many different styles of music growing up and you were able to actually play with people in all those different styles. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Wow, that's a mouthful there. It was, it wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you gotta get me to shut up sometimes. Okay, no, 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 for me, this, this, your part is good. I started on the stage um, at the age of five as a tap dancer with Mary Bruce. And um, that was my first experience with the stage. And I had a lot of other experiences in life that were like um, accidents. I had a lot of br uh, traumatic brain injuries as a child growing up. Oh, wow. So I was very withdrawn and I really didn't want to do anything. And after a, after a car accident, I spent two weeks in the hospital. I was home and I heard the music I've been listening to for the last 
you know, I was 10 years old at this point. And for some reason, the bass all of a sudden came to me as something that I could actually do in life. And before that, I had no indication of anything. I didn't want to be a fireman, you know, um, a policeman, anything that most of the kids grow up aspire to. Sure. I had no, you know, direction, no, no, um, no passion for anything. Um, but when I heard Paul Chambers playing a song that I hadn't heard before after this accident, it sounded differently. The bass slid out. I've been hearing him playing with, with Miles and other stuff. Sure. And I said, I want to do that. And that was it for me. Do you remember t what the tune was? that just? That you it was one of those songs. It was on the Round Midnight album because it's the only album I had, my sister had. Right, right. And it could have, I don't, one of those songs, I don't mm -hmm. remember which one. Right. But it stood out to me as something I wanted to do. Mm. And I was, I wasn't able to start at that particular point. I had to wait till I got to junior high school, uh -huh. and um, I got a bass and a teacher, right? And um, went to the music program and auditioned for the All Bronx High School Junior High School Orchestra. Okay. And I became the principal bassist of that. There's only three of us, but wow. I was the, the top dog in that <laughs> at that level. Wolf. And then I uh, met Eddie Gomez. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> and I realized I had a lot of more work to do. Um, he was a few years older than me. One of the um, musicians I had met at the um, All Bronx um, conference was his brother, Lorenzo Hall. He plays drums. And so he would bring the Newport Youth Band, which Harry was a part of, to his church. We have a um, jam session, basically. Mm -hmm. So I met Eddie and um, Alan Rubin and um, uh, the drummer, Larry Rosen. All the other cats, um, Annie Masala, the whole band, Benny Jacobs, L, Matt Pavone, um, and Micah Benny, the piano player. Right, fantastic. Who I worked with later, 20 years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that was my start. And then I started working professionally. Um, we did an album at the junior high school level that summer, but you couldn't hear the bass that well. You could hardly hear. And all the work we had put in, I was really upset. Of course. So I started to work harder. And it paid off because I was playing at the boys club with a bunch of kids and it was an open rehearsal space. And some men had heard me playing and when I took a, we took a break, they approached me in the hall, a hall to join the band. I said, well, sounds good to me, but you gotta ask my mother. I'm only 12 years old. <laughs> so they took me home and I was beginning my professional career. Right, yeah. yeah. That's where I started. Right, and, and the thing was that having played all that quite sophisticated music from then on, on the double bass, what was the thing that turned you on to the electric bass? The fact that the people I was, I started at one point, I was playing with a bunch of kids a little bit older than me, but they were still, they tried to do the Miles Davis thing and be disrespectful to the audience. They took that part of Miles' music and his demeanor. Right. And they decided they wanted to do things like that. <clears throat> Somebody come up and ask to play a tune. And they'd um, take the money from them and they'd play something else. They'd even think about it, we'd play something else. And that kind of turned me off. Mm -hmm. And all the time I had grown up playing professionally, um, doing gigs. Mm. Um, the first band was Smile and Hit Me and the Rhythm Makers. And we'd do gigs, there'd be five or six bands on the gig. There'd be our band, we were all the variety band. Then they have a Calypso band, a Latin band, a jazz band, right. a rhythm and blues band, sure. <laughs> you know, and a featured vocalist band. Yeah. So you have all this music going around, yeah. and a lot of them had the electric bass in it, in, right. in, in the rhythm section. 
And they seem to be having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So when I was playing with these other kids, I said, you know, this ain't it for me. I'm going to try playing with that the band that's having some fun. Right. So <laughs> I went to Bermuda with Danny Burgess. And I came back. I made up my mind to come back and buy an electric setup. Right. And that's what I did. And um, I worked on it for a while. And um, my first gig, I couldn't even, I could hardly play it. After working on it, right. I thought I had it. Fortunately, with three bands on the gig, so I was able to play an upright bass right, right, <laughs> in the right. rhythm and blues band. Right. Focus in a little bit more on what I'm trying to find out is, when you first started getting into the electric bass, mm -hmm. what were the kind of grooves that you were playing then that you said, wow, this is kind of thing because I can play this that I couldn't play on that, but now I'm playing this thing and it's called a groove, and wow. What were, what were some of the tunes you were playing at that time when you first started getting into it? Well, we were playing Leslie Blues, um, but I, I was, when I was playing upright, I was playing a lot of Latin. Right, I played right. with Pooch from the Latin Soul Brothers. I played with Willie Bobo. Right, exactly. Whoever, when the phone rang, I just answered, I just came out and, and played. And I can hear a lot of Latin in your playing. Oh, you yeah. Know, it's just underneath, it's oh, an yeah. undercurrent of Latin music. It, it always. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always. I think of a Latin, because Latin is dance music. Yes. You think about people dancing other than swing. Yeah. You know, there's Latin. Yeah. So I naturally go to that. That's my backup. Basically, everything I hear is like dance. You know, being a tap dancer, so I'm right, thinking rhythmically right, anyway. Right, right. Um, it's just natural for me to think about the rhythm first, right. and then the notes. And I couldn't really hear that well with all those, you know, TBIs I had. So yeah. my hearing has always had a crushed cochlea yeah. for the longest time. And yeah, I never couldn't. Um, you know, you discount things. You just live with what you. You work with what you right, got. Absolutely. You know what you got. You work with. Sure. You know the fact yes. that I couldn't hear well. Yes. I wanted to play. Let me to really develop it to where I was really comfortable all the time. Yeah. But I knew I had something to say. I had something to deliver. Right. And at one point, I was listening to the radio and I heard something. I said, man, they're not utilizing this instrument, which I just started playing. They're not mm -hmm. getting the, cap the full capability of it right. out. Right. That motivated me to say to myself, I'm going to show them how to play. Right. That right. was my drive at that particular. I would tell right. myself that for one second. Yeah. And then I went about my business. Right. And um, I must have been about 16, at the, about 17 at this particular point. No, maybe eight. No, I was older than that. I was 18 right. when I picked up the electric bass. Uh -huh. I played the upright for six years. That put me at 18, 17, 18. And um, most of the stuff I played was coming from um, wherever I heard. Yeah. I have my interpretation of it. And then the music that you were playing from then on, what was the first record that you did or the first band that you were with that you thought, this is the thing, now I got it? Well, you know, it's funny having now I got it. Well, that's that's funny thing is I I always knew I had it. <laughs> no, but I mean now I found it on the sense. But it didn't matter what I was playing. Yeah, I always yeah. knew I I always felt that I I had it. No, I was playing upright bass right. or other electric bass. I knew yeah. I had the right note for the right time and the right, right groove. Right. So it wasn't about discovering. It was about being having the opportunity to play it. Right. And to hear it played back over the through the headphones on the record and hear it on the radio, that's when I recognized right. the fact that, oh yeah, it's, it's working. Yeah. And then when I had other people playing and sounded like me, late years later, I said, okay, and, you know, job well done. Yes. So, but after that, there was no motivation to really play anymore, right. in a sense. So I had to only drive myself to this play for my own enjoyment right. and to um, make the music sound even better beyond what I had originally imagined. I had done my first job. Right. The second job is to stay employed and <laughs> to have fun sure. and to, you know, to um, 
take as, as, as good as I can. I get to the level where I could play where I was satisfied. Right, sure. You know, and it, I always knew that because of the limitations I had growing up, I could never be the best. I knew that from day one. But I said, I could be, I might be among the best. so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I could be among the best. I never could be the best. When you grow up with somebody like Eddie Gomez, well, John Hart, and watching the other guys who are older play, and then the abilities they had, the, the, the hearing ability, the sophisticated hearing, and the things, I said, it's, it's going to be a long time before you could be able to do that. Now, you could already read because you know That was my done, strong point. You did all that. So so did you get hired for a lot of reading gigs oh, yeah. in the beginning? Yeah. In those days? I mean, that was... And you talk about being in big bands and did, I guess you did radio and TV We things, played but, gigs. Coming coming up, we played gigs much like the Newport Youth Band. Um, Alfie Wade had a band called the Mixed Birds. And in that band was um, Richard Dubin, who might... You might know him from out here, um, Barry um, Barry uh, Barry Alshul, drummer. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. Um, Frank Mitchell, who played with Art Blakey, um, a lot of other players um, that came out of the band. Yeah, uh, from the neighborhood kids that they came together to play. So it was always around great musicians. So, I, so I guess you got a lot of a lot of gigs because <clears throat> of your reading ability. That that. Gave you an entree to other things. Yeah, I got to go up with Mercer Ellington, Duke's son. Fantastic. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, a lot of the things were happening in terms of my ability to read. I realized that. Yes. Um, and when I started doing session work, the demo sessions, there were not that much. There wasn't that much music about your ideas you come up with. Right. So it gave right. me the freedom to to um, be able to read a chart, but still be able to improvise and create exactly. something at the same time. Exactly. And would you say that most of the? I mean, jumping ahead a little bit to the Muscle Shoals days. Because you were playing with such great players who were each one of them very creative. Mm -hmm. Did I'd, I'd love to know uh, the typical session? You'd walk into a session with those guys. What what kind of went on? What was the first thing that happened? Did somebody hand out some chord a chord sheet or something, or did did people just say, "Here's my song, I'm going to play it"? How did it work out? A little bit of everything. Sometimes they sing something in your ear on a demo session. Um, the higher echelon sessions, they'd be a chart, they'd be arrangers, Burt D. Guitar would be there, Horace Art, Don Sebeski, you name it, the local cats who were like, you know, right. arranging in New York at that particular time. They were well, you know, um, what's the other cat's name? I forget his name. But he would take my music that I'd do in a session one week uh -huh. and then put it in another key, uh -huh. have me play the same line yeah. or another song yeah. with the music I played last week <laughs> on a different key. Right. <laughs> I said, I ain't having this. You right. know? <laughs> <laughs> I, at that point, I would revolt yeah, and, and just do my own thing. Absolutely. And, and you also talked about the, your, your work as an arranger. Now, sometimes I suppose you'd wa walk into the session and say, okay, Jerry, th this is the song. What do you think we should do about it? That didn't happen too often. But yeah. what did happen was J.J. Jackson, he hired me as an arranger, right. not to play the bass. He liked my bass playing so much. He said, well, if you can do that so much, how about you arrange the song for me? Right. And I did. I went home, wrote out all the parts, the bass yeah. part, the drum part, the right. sax parts, oh, the whole nine yards. Don't remember the name of the <laughs> session at <laughs> all. But that was my first, one of my first major sessions, actually. Yeah. That yeah. was as an arranger. Mm. Um, but then I started doing um, my first so-called um, production session was with Nina Simone. Right. I recorded her, and this is like my first year playing the electric <clears throat> bass. So it's right. been like a, 
I guess chronologically, I guess it's hard to remember everything in order. Sure, sure. That's why I wrote my book a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, and I have, you know, working on getting that out. And it's more... Um, and the book is called... I'm That Guy. I'm That Guy. And he is that guy. <laughs> yeah. um, it kind of chronicles my personal life more than my professional life. But I briefly touched on here of my traumatic brain injuries as a child. Yeah. And how it affected my, um, my total life completely. I mean, from to this sure. day, you know, people wow. suffer from whiplash and they have concussions and they get into a fog and they have to, it takes, it kind of explains why I was so withdrawn as a child, why right. I didn't want to do anything right. until I heard the bass after my car accident where right. it was a pretty big one. Yeah. I was out for two weeks, didn't even, I don't even remember it. Right. I, my sister told me what happened basically. Right, right. Um, so my thing is like, um, you got to work with what you got and have right. a passion. Certainly. A passion for it. You need passion. You need compassion, which I had very little of. Hmm. It was about, you know, me playing. Yeah. I had um, mental, not so much mental fortitude. I had a lot of physical endurance. Right, right. I had a lot of physical endurance. And those are the things that I wrote on, my physical endurance and my passion. Yeah. That was the two elements that I have, you know, locked on. Later on, I learned to develop compassion. Right. I learned to de develop mental fortitude. Right. But um, it takes time. And like you said, you don't do this in five minutes. No, you certainly You don't. know, you play like, you know, like from, from playing the electric arco on the upright bass, holding yes. long, long notes. Yes. How slow can you play? How long can you hold that yes. note? The wind player, you playing whole notes, how, blow you know, blow for long tones. Long tones. Yeah. And this is where you get your power from. Right. So I had all that going from, you know, that was, yes. what, I had a good foundation physically. Yes. And, and um, <clears throat> you've worked with so many different bands and so many different musicians. I, I'm all, you know, of course, I've, I've always been fascinated by that chemistry that you had with the King Curtis band, with Cornell Dupree. And <sighs> I want you to talk a little bit about how each one of those musicians playing with Bernard Purdy, for instance, how, I mean, you have a really amazing sense of where one is and where the center of the beat is. And it, when, I, when I hear you playing with one drummer, you find exactly where his thing is instantly. And tell me a little bit about the way you think of that, especially, I, I guess, as a bass player, the drummer is really important. Well, it was funny. Um, I have to go back to my jazz training um, experience because that's where I really it comes from being able to recognize where things have to be different and to make things different and to um, not necessarily lock with the drummer yes. but to play a part. I'm I'm used to playing parts. Yes. And when I joined King Curtis's band, he taught me. He said, "Slow down. You know, let's play one line, play one line, not fifteen. Right. right. You know, you have to make up your mind what you're going to play. Yes. Basically, he didn't yes. say it verbally, but I realized from his example. Right. He told me, you know, I I learned." the art of doing that. And said, okay, it doesn't have to be, this. I was making the job harder than it had to be. Right, sure. And he recognized that. And I'm beginning to recognize it even now. I mean, I hear things that are sophisticated, but I have to bring it back to like, how few notes can you play at this point yes. and still make it happen? Very as opposed true. to playing a lot of notes. Yes. You know, so my thing now at this particular point is how little can I play and still be effective? That's right. In fact, exactly. that's one of the techniques I would use going in the studio, you know, playing three or four days a week. I mean, a, a day, Week after week, you get kind of drained of what, what you know in terms of, of approach. Right. Knowing I had little limited capabilities, I had to figure out an approach that I'd be comfortable in. So some days I say, okay, you're going to play as few notes as possible, 
and then the next day I play as many notes as possible and, and make it work. Yes. First, it had to it had to work. Yeah, now I wouldn't yeah. just do it arbitrarily. Yeah. It had to make sense for me to do it. Yeah, and, and that would be my approach. What you're talking about reminds me a lot of what Miles Davis said that he he knew that he didn't have the technique of something somebody mm -hmm. like I guess Cliff Dizzy. Brown or Dizzy, Dizzy. Or something. Mm -hmm. but what he had an idea, and he said he said I figured out a way to say what I wanted to say with my capabilities and still make it strong and still yeah. make it. And, and I, I often say to my arranging students, I say, okay, now I want you to take everything away from the arrangement that you can possibly take and still make it your arrangement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I want you to take note of what you took away. Because mm -hmm. what you took away was not necessary, mm -hmm. but that was. Mm -hmm. So so keep note of that for the next arrangement. Then I want you to write another arrangement, remembering that. So so that's kind of what we all did in the studios when we were coming up. We're thinking, what can we do, you know, and how should we do it? And you learn. It's sort of self-training. It is, because you can't, you can't, you'll never know everything. You'll never, there's always something else to learn. Yes. I ran into um, Hank Jones. Hank Jones. And he was about 88 at the time. This is about, before I left New York, about 2006, seven. I went to a session where Richard Davis was there and um, Ralph McDonald and um, Hank said, I'm still trying to get it together. Right. Okay. And here's a man who sure. like, yeah. historically, I mean, this is one of the greatest piano players ever and right. he's still working on getting right. it together. Right. So it's a lifelong thing. You yes, always there's always something else to learn, and having the tools in which to learn it right. is the most important thing. And the other thing that that reminds me of, because we were talking about Buddhism earlier, you, there's a place which is in Japan in in Kyoto. There's a garden. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, it's a, one of those sand Buddhist sand gardens. Oh. And in the garden, there are gosh, I, I don't remember. I think it's sixteen rocks. Mm -hmm. of different sizes all over this. There's a walkway around it that they built, and you can walk around three sides of it. to One, two, actually two sides of it. You can walk all this way. And the the monk came out, you know, and he was whispering in my ear, and, and he said, uh, there are 16 stones here. And I said, great. And he says, count them. And I said, I, I only count 13. And he said, okay, now go over here. Oh, now I only count 12. So the, the garden had been designed so that you could never see all the stones. All six. And, and, it's, and it was to teach people that you can never know everything. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that. Yeah. Just what you were talking that's about. That's cool. Yeah. Um, when I hear you play with different drummers, I notice that you, you play differently and you manage to sync beautifully with whatever person it is, but they're different personalities. So what is it that goes on, on in your mind when you, or, you know, you walk in the studio and you say, oh, that's Bernard Purdy over there. I know that I, I'm going to play this way. But whereas another drummer, you'll say, ah, I know he, maybe he, he, he plays slightly behind the beat. Or, do you have that kind of thought? Yeah, uh, but that's very deep. Nobody's really, uh, maybe, I'm glad I have an opportunity to, to, to say what I'm going to say, basically. Um, I really listen to this the song. I don't listen to individual instruments. That's like the last thing I think of. Okay. I listen to the get the title of the song. I listen to the singer's phrasing or the lead player's phrasing, and I really I'm really there to support them. Mm -hmm. And the, everything else is part of the equation. We're all 
of the same mind, I would think, trying to support the singer. So everybody gives their version of support. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we have to come together or either lock in or just find our parts so we don't get in the way of each other. Right. So, and depending upon who it is, I, there's a, a certain expectation. Like with Bernard, I play something and he copied it. I said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to do this after this song. So I set him up <laughs> to play, copy my thing, and when the red light would come on, i play something different. Um, that's how I dealt with Bernard. Great. With Herb Lavelle, he was my favorite drummer. I could play anything. I could, he would he play his thing, I'd play my thing, and we, we hear it, we listen to the song, and we come together within the song. Mm -hmm. Bernard basically plays his, what Bernard plays, and that's basically it. So mm -hmm. I would play in and out of what Bernard was doing, basically. As a, you know, depending upon the song, I can't say for everything. Sure, of course. But it's always about the song first, right. and everything else is going to kind of fall in naturally. Uh -huh. um, that's been, always been my approach. You know, song title, what it means. Yes. And the sound of it, um, how do you want to express it, the tempo, right. the groove, right. all these things. And then I find something that's going to support it, whether it's going to be on the beat or behind the beat. It might require it before the beat. Yes. Um, I kind of look at it that way. Whatever it's required, the energy, it happens. Like a lot of things I play that require a lot of, um, for instance, where I recorded um, People Gotta Be Free with the Rascals. Right. Um that was over Reef Mardine. He was the um, arranger. He called me for the session. Right. And that was very loose. And I was able to play freely. Uh huh. Um, the Bugatti Brothers. Oh, right. One played drums, Eddie, and the other one was the singer. Eddie and um, I forget the drummer's name. And Felix and uh, the guitar player, I forget his name also. But um, it's, all, it's all in the history. But those are very free and loose sessions. Right. And I was able to. Um, take a chart, basically, and read the chart, mm -hmm. a chord chart, right. and then make something out of it. Sure. And one one or two takes, basically. Yeah. Um, and that was a very uh, example of a free session. Yes. That was orchestrated, but yet we've had freedom to create. And most of my sessions were, were like that, basically. Once they found that I could create yes. pretty quickly, they, start, they stopped writing out parts for me. Absolutely. A record, of course. I think the first time I ever said, wait a minute, who's playing bass on this track was Think. Oh. <laughs> and, and it was you, and so so now that that is a really hip part, and it's it, it's kind of the basis of so much soul and funk and boogaloo and whatever. Now, when you when you walked into that session, what what was written out for you? Anything? That's I have a whole paragraph chapter in my book right. just about that song. Okay, that's when I met Aretha, and that's when I met. I've been working for Dre Wexler. Right before that, and he. Um, told me to come to the session. He says, you may play, you play, you might not play, but bring your bass anyway. Okay. That was a, how I walked into the session, 10 right. o'clock in the morning. Right. And in retrospect, I realized now that Martin Luther King had just been killed 11 days prior to that. Oh, wow. Um, the studio was full of people. I went to the control room because I wasn't scheduled to really play this, be there to observe the right, session. Right, right, And they started at 10 o'clock. <laughs> they were already in the session. And... From the first time she's played the introduction, I said, oh yeah, cool. But the rest of the band didn't get it. Say between, between between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m., they were doing all kinds of stuff to make this record. And I'm sitting there like, in agony, basically. Yes, My friend, Paul Martin, he was with me. I said, you know, I'm going to observe, so I bring the same to hang out with me. And so we, I sat there for three hours and watched them 
try to make sense out of what she was doing. Right. And I heard it immediately when the first, when she's playing what it should have been. Right. And of course I was here to observe, but I'm not that much outgoing, so I, was, I wasn't about to say anything. Right, right. And so at a two o'clock, Jerry Webster said, um, go in there and see what you can do. Nice. And that's what was, that's how Think Book was created. Absolutely. And she played that badass introduction. Yeah. And then, <laughs> I played, I heard the line that yes, pick up, which sure is, did. um, a jazz, a jazz, a... Right. I played that after she played that, bop, ba -da -ba -da, yeah. you know, there was that yeah. break. Yeah. Yeah. And I hit that break yeah. and then went into the country. Right. I was playing basically... Exactly. Exactly. Country. And these guys were from the country. Yeah. They're from Alabama. <laughs> I mean, you should know this stuff, you know, but they wanted to make it... They were so used to making things something else, but they had made her seven previous hits. Right, the same right. band. Yeah. So I had a lot of respect for them. Tommy Cogbill, uh -huh. great bassist. I mean, he worked with Wilson sure. Pickett. Yeah. Engine, engine number nine, nine, nine and a half. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I love Tommy. Yeah, yeah. But he, um, it wasn't happening. But that can happen. It, you know, sure, I've it can, seen it, can it happen. happen many times in the studio where you've got a great player, but they just don't get that tune. They just don't get that thing. Exactly. But, but I think also I. I would guess that you would say that your wide experience of so many different styles allowed you to make those choices. Yeah, yeah, I heard it right away. Yeah, it's about the so it's like I say, it's about the music. Yes. You know, I don't care what style it is. No. Or what tempo it is, it's about the music and what you're trying to say. She's talking yeah. about she's talking about freedom. Yes. You know, think about it. I'm hearing these lyrics while it's for three hours now while yeah, you know yeah. you, you know, <laughs> makes and it's not making sense of it, then that's supporting what she's saying. Yeah. And my thing is about supporting the, the vocal you know, the message. You get the sure, message out. Sure. So I had a, you know, basically I knew what it's supposed to be, and um, you want something aggressive, you want something strong and aggressive behind yes, what she's trying yes, to say. And they yes. were playing some kind of making some kind of slick rhythm and blues kind yeah, of yeah, sound yeah. and thing. It just wasn't happening. Yeah. And it was really simple. We were three takes, two takes, we were out. Yeah. And I got yeah. up to leave, yeah. and Tommy said, "Stay here." Because <laughs> 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 he jumped on the guitar. That's why they're playing guitar. Right, right, right. I call it bebop country. Blue, <laughs> right. Bluegrass, because that's what he was playing. Uh -huh. It was fast, it was loud. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, we just came together with so much. That was magic. Yeah. That was truly magic. Because they had been suffering with the song for three hours, and it, yeah. it wasn't happening. But, but one of the things that I say to students, students think, well, it's, it's all about... Uh, uh, coming up with something from the spirit, you know. No, it's those years of experience of playing all these different styles. You knew Latin, you knew country, you knew classical, you knew, and all of that came together to put in your mind the exact line that you should have played. So, ah, mm -hmm. if I put it all together, it spells mother, you know. And you <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, so so that's really fascinating to hear about that that session, and uh, of course there are thousands of others I, I'd like to talk about. But tell me this: Were you ever on a session where you just thought, "I absolutely don't know what to do on this tune"? Oh yeah, it can happen. At, you know, it can happen tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like you know. Um, but sometimes you you find a way. You listen. You dig deeper. Right. Sure. You, you dig deeper into what's going on and, that you can do to make you know the idea is to make a hit record. When I go into record something, I know I'm going to make history. You're making a record. Yes. And it's a privilege to be able to be be heard. 
I mean, so many musicians who are great, fantastic, never get heard. That's right. Unless they're in a live, except in a live context, which sure. is only it's only limited to the audience there. Yeah. So I really appreciate the, you know opportunities that opportunities I've had to do that. Although to tell you the truth, Richard, um, I never really wanted to be heard. I never wanted to be in the spotlight. If that was the case, I would have played trumpet, like most of my friends were. <laughs> right. You know, I wanted to play. I wanted to be in the background, just playing the bass. Yeah. That's why I, that was my vision when I said sure. I want to do that. Sure. I saw myself in the back, back of the band, yes. standing up, playing the bass, yes. which I could hardly hear. I didn't right. realize my hearing was that bad. That's why I couldn't hear it. Right. But I had to really listen hard for it. Yeah. Well, I say, well, I have to listen that hard. Maybe I can get away with playing and not being so scrutinized right, right. in that position. So that's right. why I chose the bass. Yeah, yeah. As a result of that, as a result of my inability to kind of focus and hear things and still be engaged, because I like what Paul had done with the music. He was so hip. Yeah. How we like, you know, make the music just jump up and little subtle things he would do. Uh -huh. I said, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, you know, but to be able to do it, to want to do it, and to be able to do it, right, sure. it's two different things. Of course. Well, but it came to me kind of naturally to like, find out where to pick the spots to, to do these little extra right. things well, and the importance of it. The harder you work, the better you go. Oh, and the easier, <laughs> the easier it gets. I mean, it's hard yeah. when you don't know. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it's so, so hard. I and remember the, talking to, to Jerry Wexler about how much he loved working, of course, first with the Stax Band. He had never, because he had always worked in New York and he always saw sessions where there was a a chart, guy would have everybody read the chart, mm -hmm. go home, have lunch. But he said, when I came down to Stacks, there were these four guys, they hung up their jackets. And, <laughs> I and, love that part. Yeah, I, I love that. That's what I, yeah. <laughs> and he said, and they just had these little, you know, chords written out on a piece of toilet paper, and that was it. And they didn't even talk about chords, they just talked in numbers. Mm -hmm. And then he said, and then when I moved to Muscle Shoals, it was even more like that. Mm -hmm. And he called it collective arranging. Mm -hmm. which, I, which I've seen, of course, throughout my life. And, you know, obviously I write out parts, but mm -hmm. a lot of times I've been in the studio in places where nothing's written out and everybody has to just pitch in and say, okay. Make some music. Yeah, and he, he said, like, for instance, on the I Never Loved a Man session, that Spooner Oldham was the guy who really gave a lot of ideas mm -hmm. of what it was all about. Can you tell me a little bit about working with that Muscle Shoals Outfit. Yeah, it was cool. You mentioned Spooner. He's my one of my favorite people from that time. He's one of me and him are the only ones left. Everybody wow. else is gone. Wow. I spoke to Spooner. Um, I know last year I've spoke a few two times since Aretha passed away because they were calling both of us to do um, mostly him to um, talk about whatever they had to do. Sure. In, in terms of um, historical context. Um, but um, working with Spooner in New York was one thing, and then working in he was on some of the sessions I did um, in Muscle Shows, I believe. It was the same band, basically. Um, it was we were basically following Aretha with that band. Right. We would follow her lead. Yes. And when I worked with that same band in Muscle Shows, it was always that collective thing happening. Right. That you spread. We did the traditional thing, and no music. We make our own charts if we needed a chart. Yes. Well, you know, we all have great sessions, and we all have sessions where we think, don't tell anybody I was here. <laughs> so tell me, did you ever have the, you know, the session? I'm sure, I've, I'm sure I've had, I'm sure I've had my, my, my stumbles. I, I know I've had, I've, I've had to have had. I'm not saying your stumbles, but you know, you walk into a place and it's like, 
you know, the, the night of the living dead, you know. <laughs> well, I've, I've been on some, I've walked into some strange circumstances and I've had to like, you know, especially in the early days, I mean, with, with Wilson Pickett, in fact, like, Arif called me because the bass player didn't show up. Oh, right. He calls me at 10.30, session starts at 10. Yeah. He says, um, Jerry, can you come down? Um, the guy didn't show up, whoever it was. I say, right. I can be there. Yeah. I says, this is one tune. I get there and there's 25 people waiting, waiting for the bass part. <laughs> They already they already know the music, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I got to be on point to play it. Yeah, that was basically the challenge for me to be able to deal with the, the pressure of the session. Right. And that one that one gave me a lot of confidence to um, really pursue it because I could do that. You know, that's what I can. That gave me the word out that I can do things like that. Yeah. I'm not sure what year that was in. It's almost before. It was probably before Aretha. But that's why <laughs> they called you, because Arif. I can I can tell from talking to him. He would say, "I got I got to get the guy who can who can save this thing. It's going to be Jerry." Well, he called me and um I did um De De Deborah. It was a big hit for Wilson in in Europe, okay. which made the whole thing Ribbon and Blues in Europe thing uh -huh. come really alive with that because he performed at the um, he had that ready for the um the special festival. We did it on Monday. It was right. it was it was released on Friday. He had to yeah. take it to Europe and um, play it at the festival with uh -huh. the track while right. he sang it with um, another Italian singer. Right. Um, it's, it's quite a rush of um, com a convergence of like the necessity and the need yes. to get it done like really quick. Oh sure, yeah. And we got it done. And Ken Curtis was like that. Wow. He hear yeah. something on the radio. He said, "Okay, we gonna record this." And we'd be in the studio the next day, and the next right. could be out on Friday. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was that quick turnaround. Yeah. He had that kind of clout. Yeah, did you, and you didn't just work down there; you worked all over the country, right? I mean, because basically New York and Muscle Shows, and that was a uh, me and Dwayne did the Muscle Shows. Every time I went to Muscle Shows, Dwayne was with me. Uh huh. Um, he flying. Well, we want to say he'd come in from Georgia or wherever he was. Sometimes he'd go back to New York. Um, but he was on all those sessions. Right, right. In fact, that's when he started the band, after leaving one of those sessions. Because we right. were always kind of like, we really didn't want to do them because we knew that the guys weren't getting paid properly. Ooh. Yeah, And we kind of felt bad about that. We yeah. so we, Finally, we said, you know, this the vibe. You know, the music was good, but the vibe of having to create music as a group Right. And somebody's getting paid less than you are, and you yes, know that, yeah, yeah, and they're working their ass off and they're for yeah. peanuts, and you're making all this money. Uh -huh. We both felt kind of like not comfortable with no, it. No, no, no. And so not. finally, we both, at the last session we did together, um, it was I think it was a picket session. We did Hey Jude. Right. I think that was the session. He said, I said, I'm not doing this no more. He said, right. me either. Right. I said, what you going to do? I said, I'm going to go up and um, I told him I'm going to go. I saw I'm going to... um." Go to New York, go back home, right? And tell Radio Registry who books uh, my job. Sure, yeah. Don't book me. Don't no more. Um, just give me jingles and movies. I'm not just head picking stuff. I yeah. don't want to do it in New York either. No, no, okay. No, no. Because <laughs> you're not getting paid properly. You're not getting paid properly as an arranger. Because people arranging things would get, get paid right, properly. Right. And the vibe down there was kind of funny. So I, we, I decided to do that. And yeah. I said, "What you gonna do, brother?" He said, well, "I'm gonna go home and start a band with my brother." Right, but, but in New York, didn't uh, didn't didn't they have to pay? I mean, if they booked a, a session, didn't they have to pay the union? And then that's, you got no, the not that's, we get. I did a lot of cash dates. Oh, I see. Did a lot of cash dates, and uh, that's to my detriment because my pension goes down because of that. Because you know, it goes to the pension, you and goes to right, the pension. Sure, but sure, yeah. then a lot of those cash dates, they wouldn't. Um, they pay you in cash. Yeah. 
and then some from the union they say pay you like they take three months like the um Roulette records. Yeah, they take you three. They give them three or four months to pay oh, you. Oh, I know, I know. And, and forgive me for asking such breadhead questions, guys. But I always do ask these questions because I, I think people don't realize how difficult it is for even for successful musicians to make a living. Yeah, because what you have to go through. You put the time in, then you don't get paid for it. Put three months later. Yeah, you exactly. Can? That was um, Sonny Lester. Yeah. Anyway, they do a lot of organ. I play with every organ player. Yeah, McGriff, McDuff. Charles Erlen. Oh, right, sure, sure. I worked with all of them with, yeah. um, doing these sets for Roulette Records and um, 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 Blue Note. Right. And he was a producer, and we never get paid oh, pro God. properly. And so it's always like, oh, you take it's these cash gigs, you get paid right away. So oh, that was the lure of getting oh, the, the cash gig. And jingles were usually cash? No, jingles were always Studio Union. But at least you got paid because it was an ad agency or something. Yeah, like you got, we got paid. We got the um, residuals. And, and, and in Muscle Shoals, did you get paid through the studio or what? No, cash. Oh, I see. That okay. was cash also. All right, well. Yeah. It's better than a kick in the head. Yeah, I get a horse. check from, um, yeah, <laughs> right. Go Barbara Harris right after she was signed to get the check. She called up and say, come pick up your check, right, you know. right. That's how it worked. Yeah, yeah. So I, I now I want to ask you because I, you know, I, I would love to hear it explained from the horse's mouth. The color thing. Just explain <laughs> a little bit about about how the color thing works. Came out and worked with Laura Nero. Okay, great. We were Herb and I were on a session with Laura. We do a sessions with her. Yeah. And she would say, can you put a little green on that? A yes. little pink on I've that? I've heard mm -hmm. that she always talked in colors. She talked in colors. And so 20 years later... 30 years later, I'm talking to Herb, we're reminiscing about stuff, and I'm showing him my, my brand new music book about this music and everyone yeah. that I had written. We're using the number system right, that Jerry right. West referred to. Yes, yes. That they use all the time. No notes, no chord names, just the numbers. Right. Using that system, basically. And I did the whole <laughs> learning system. I still use it. I mean, it's my go-to. Sure. Um, for teaching, learning, you know, I learned the monk tune the other day. Yeah. Using that system. Um, so he said, um, can you... Um, teach, you know, your system using colors? I said, well, <laughs> well hey, why not, why you know? Not? And so he said, he said, go ahead and go, go for it, you know? I don't want to really be involved in it, but just, you know, take a crack at it. Well, here we are 22 years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, finally, I finally got something that I could show people, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so the, but the basic idea for my Radio Richard listeners, the basic idea is that each note and each key has a sort of color hue. Is that the idea? Well, each note has a certain key. Well, originally, people look at the color sound music as what Pythagoras came up with. Okay. And he only used the rainbow colors, okay. which are seven, right? which equate to all the keys in what all the notes in one key, yes. leaving out the octave. Right. And they ironically, have to, ironically are only the keys in the key of C, the notes right. in the key of C, right. which uh, correspond to all the white keys on the piano. Right. Okay. So what right. I did, I started, I added the black keys, yes. which are the accidental. So instead sure. of C sharp, D flat, we have now, we have brown. Right. Instead of, um, did I say brown? I think you did. Yeah, C sharp, D flat. No, right. C, we have brown. Okay. Yeah. D sharp, E flat, we have gold. Right. I see. Okay. F sharp, G flat, we have turquoise. Yes. <laughs> G sharp, A flat, we have silver. Right. And A sharp, B flat, we have pink, as we did 
play the blues. We play the pink blues. So um, that's basically how it works. Every, now every note has a color as opposed to just the white keys, which okay. are the rainbow colors. Right. I so I, mean, I chose those colors because this what we see mm -hmm. on earth. Right. What we actually live with. Yes. Silver, gray. We live with black. Uh -huh. We live with white. Uh -huh. And if a note gets so dark, yeah. so low in turn, right. and, and pitch, it turns black. Right. So you can have a black in every 12 keys. Wow. Okay. okay. So high, it turns white. Oh, I you see. So white different there. octaves have a different... Different intensity. Exactly. Oh, I see. Exactly. But the oh. human eye, ironically, can only pick up so much. So to make yes. it simple, I've made it so like what you're seeing, like my each octave is actually each color is actually two octaves. Wow. That's why I had to, to make it to make it um, usable. Right. Because it's too it became too convoluted with even for every ten octaves right. you have a different hue. But once you see one red, you can imagine. It's about the imagination. Right. You can imagine what any shade of red you want. Right. Imagine the reds in your song. Right. It doesn't have to be the red that's there. It could be the red that you can imagine because it's right. really about perception. Sure, sure. So yeah. that's what the system that's basically great. does. And, and the book is called? The book is called Jamboree. Okay, good. That's the <laughs> Okay, so if you want to get into the colors, Jamboree. Yeah. But if you can forget the book, I like, I've gotten to the point now where... You put things in a book, they get people don't read books. Okay. It gets lost. It gets buried. So I have an app that I'm creating. Oh, okay. We have Good. it so you can actually see the colors okay. and hear a note. Yes. And from there, we want to get software so you can actually do things with it. Right. What the human would actually do if he's inclined to. Like you see like red, you have um, a relationship with something red in your life or something you're seeing. And you can uh -huh. go from a whole story based upon red. Right. Okay. Well, check it out. Find the app when it's ready, and, yes. and that'll be great. You can see the app now on solarenergy.org. So, there you go. You can see the, and, the prototype. And just below here, you'll see that I'm showing you that website address right here <laughs> that you can check out. It's a, fun, it's a fun game you can play, where you yeah. match color with whatever you're hearing. A song might have, like, as we know, like the key of G has F sharp in it. It certainly does. Okay. It has, always has. Exactly. So... <laughs> That's the key that, that you wouldn't normally see. That's what you color you wouldn't normally think of in color sound music. Uh -huh. But now you're able to actualize everything that you actually ever heard into color. Right, right. Okay. This is fantastic. As and right now, why don't we have a few colors with Alex? Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, but this is my workout uh -huh. because it's hard to play. Right. And it's, it's very challenging. Uh -huh. I find things that are challenging for me to play. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And and I also notice that where you you know you where your finger actually hits the string is you know you're not just touching it man you're you're actually yeah. giving it some garlic I am this little metal yeah well there's that hand but I'm talking about that, that. yeah you're really slamming it. I really I play without an amp all the time most yeah. mostly so yeah. I'm playing I'm used to playing acoustically yeah. that way I'm not disturbing anybody yeah all those well, considerations I understand that. yeah sure yeah. so like um, playing with his thumb really <laughs> yeah that's why I played with his thumb because you could practice all the time and it was quiet. <sighs> you know if you play this mm -hmm. it's quieter than playing yeah it's yeah. true okay well I'm in the right direction yeah okay
Talks about interesting stuff. Well, we we certainly have a lot to talk about because yeah. look where the world is today. They need us. Yes, I think so. I they agree need with us you entirely. Radio Dum Dum Radio, always at Richard Niles. Radio Richard Radio, Radio Richard. Radio Richard.